too. My, marched around to the other side, and surprised the enemy at daylight. At Brooklyn, he used masked batteries, and presented a fierce row of round, black spots painted on canvas that, from the city, looked like the mouths of cannon at which men seek the bauble reputation. It is said he also sent a note threatening to fire these sham cannon, on receiving which the enemy hastily moved beyond range, perceiving afterwards that they had been imposed upon. The brave English sent word to shoot and be damned. Evidently, Washington considered that all things are fair in love and war. Washington talked but little, and his usual air was one of melancholy that stopped just short of sadness. All this, with the firmness of his features and the dignity of his carriage, gave the impression of sternness and severity, and these things gave rise to the popular conception that he had small sense of humor, yet he surely was fond of a quiet smile. At one time, Congress insisted that a standing army of 5,000 men was too large, Washington replied that if England would agree never to invade this country with more than 3,000 men, he would be perfectly willing that our army should be reduced to 4,000. When the King of Spain, knowing he was a farmer, thoughtfully sent him a present of a jackass. Washington proposed naming the animal in honor of the donor, and in writing to friends about the present, draws invidious comparisons between the gift and the giver. Evidently, the joke pleased him, for he repeats it in different letters, thus showing how, when he sat down to clear his desk of correspondence, he economized energy by following a form. So, we now find letters that are almost identical, even to jokes sent to persons in South Carolina and in Massachusetts. Doubtless the good man thought they would never be compared, for how could he foresee that an autograph dealer in New York would eventually catalog them at $22.50 each, or that a very proper but half-affectionate missive of his to a fair lady would be sold by her great-granddaughter for $50? In 1793 there were on the Mount Vernon plantation 370 head of cattle, and Washington appends to the report a sad regret that, with all this number of horn beasts, he yet has to buy butter. There is also a fine, grim humor shown in the incident of a flag of truce coming in at New York, bearing a message from General Howe, addressed to Mr. Washington. The general took the letter from the hand of the redcoat, glanced at the superscription, and said, Why, this letter is not for me. It is directed to a planter in Virginia. I'll keep it and give it to him at the end of the war. Then, cramming the letter into his pocket, he ordered the flag of truce out of the lines and directed the gunners to stand by. In an hour, another letter came back addressed to His Excellency, General Washington. It was not long after this a soldier brought to Washington a dog that had been found wearing a collar with the name of General Howe engraved on it. Washington returned the dog by a special messenger with a note reading. General Washington sends his compliments to General Howe, and begs to return one dog that evidently belongs to him. In this instance, I am inclined to think that Washington acted in sober good faith, but was the victim of a practical joke on the part of one of his aides. Another remark that sounds like a joke, but perhaps was not one, was when, on taking command of the army at Boston, the general writes to his lifelong friend, Dr. Crike, asking what he can do for him and adding a sentiment still in the air, but these Massachusetts people suffer nothing to go by them that they can lay their hands on. In another letter he pays his compliments to Connecticut thus, their impecunious meanness surpasses belief. When Cornwallis surrendered at Yorktown, Washington refused to humiliate him and his officers by accepting their swords. He treated Cornwallis as his guest, 
and even, gave a dinner in his honor. At this dinner, Rochambeau being asked for a toast gave, the United States. Washington proposed, the King of France. Cornwallis nearly gave, the King. And Washington, putting the toast, expressed it as Cornwallis intended, the King of England, and added a sentiment of his own that made even Cornwallis laugh, may he stay there. Washington's treatment of Cornwallis made him a lifelong friend. Many years after, when Cornwallis was Governor General of India, he sent a message to his old antagonist, wishing him prosperity and enjoyment, and adding, as for myself, I am yet in troubled waters. Once in a century, possibly, a being is born who possesses a transcendent insight, and him we call a genius. Shakespeare, for instance, to whom all knowledge lay open, John of Arc, the artist Turner, Swedenborg, the mystic these are the men who know a royal road to geometry, but we may safely leave them out of account when we deal with the builders of a state, for among statesmen there are no geniuses, nobody knows just what a genius is or what he may do next, he boils at an unknown temperature, and often explodes at a touch, he is uncertain and therefore unsafe, his best results are conjured forth, but no man has yet conjured forth the nation it is all slow, patient, painstaking work along mathematical lines. Washington was a mathematician and therefore not a genius. We call him a great man, but his greatness was of that sort in which we all can share, his virtues were of a kind that, in degree, we too may possess. Any man who succeeds in a legitimate business works with the same tools that Washington used. Washington was human. We know the man, we understand him, we comprehend how he succeeded, for with him there were no tricks. No ledger domain, no secrets. He is very near to us. Washington is indeed first in the hearts of his countrymen. Washington has no detractors. There may come a time when another will take first place in the affections of the people, but that time is not yet ripe. Lincoln stood between men who now lied and the prizes they coveted, thousands still tread the earth whom he benefited, and neither class can forgive, for they are of clay. But all those who lived when Washington lived are gone. Not one survives, even the last body servant, who confused memory with hearsay, has departed babbling to his rest. We know all of Washington we will ever know, there are no more documents to present, no partisan witnesses to examine, no prejudices to remove. His purity of purpose stands unimpeached, his steadfast earnestness and sterling honesty are our priceless examples. We love the man, we call him father. Benjamin Franklin I will speak ill of no man not even in matter of truth, but rather excuse the faults I hear charged upon others, and upon proper occasion speak all the good I know of everybody. Franklin's journal Benjamin Franklin was twelve years old. He was large and strong and fat and good-natured, and had a full moon face and red cheeks that made him look like a country bumpkin. He was born in Boston within twenty yards of the church called Old South, but the Franklins now lived at the corner of Congress and Hanover Streets where to this day there swings in the breeze a gilded ball, and on it the legend, Josiah Franklin, soap boiler. Benjamin was the fifteenth child in the family, and several having grown to maturity and flown. There were thirteen at the table when little Ben first sat in the high chair, but the Franklins were not superstitious, and if little Ben ever prayed that another would be born, just for luck, we know nothing of it. His mother loved him very much and indulged him in many ways for he was always her baby boy, but the father thought that because he was good-natured he was also lazy and should be disciplined. Once upon a time the father was packing a barrel of beef in the cellar, 
and Ben was helping him, and as the father always said grace at table, the boy suggested he ask a blessing, once for all, on the barrel of beef and thus economize breath, but economics along that line did not appeal to Josiah Franklin, for this was early in 1718, and Josiah was a Presbyterian and lived in Boston, the boy was not religious, for he never went forward, and only went to church because he had to, and read Plutarch's lives with much more relish than he did Saints Rest, but he had great curiosity and asked questions until his mother would say, goodness gracious, go and play, and as the boy wasn't very religious or very fond of work, his father and mother decided that there were only two careers open for him, the mother proposed that he be made a preacher, but his father said, send him to sea, to go to sea under a good strict captain would discipline him, and to send him off and put him under the care of the Reverend Doctor thoroughly would answer the same purpose which course should be pursued, but Palisaphim, who was to watch over this lad's destinies all through life, preserved him from either, his parents' aspirations extended even to his becoming captain of a schooner or pastor of the first church at Roxbury, and no doubt he could have sailed the schooner around the globe in safety or filled the pulpit with a degree of power that would have caused consternation to reign in the heart of every other preacher in town, but fate saved him that he might take the ship of state, when she threatened to strand on the rocks of adversity, and pilot her into peaceful waters, and to preach such sermons to America that their eloquence still moves us to better things, parents think that what they say about their children goes, and once in an awfully long time it does but the men who become great and learned usually do so in spite of their parents which remark was first made by Martin Luther, but need not be discredited on that account. Ben's oldest brother was James. Now, James was nearly forty, he was tall and slender, stooped a little, and had sandy whiskers, and a nervous cough, and positive ideas on many subjects one of which was that he was a printer. His apprentice, or devil, had left him because the devil did not like to be cuffed whenever the compositor shuffled his fonts. James needed another apprentice, and proposed to take his younger brother and make a man of him if the old folks were willing. The old folks were willing and Ben was duly bound by law to his brother, agreeing to serve him faithfully, as Jacob served Laban, for seven years and two years more. Science has explained many things, but it has not yet told why it sometimes happens that when seventeen eggs are hatched, the brood will consist of 16 barnyard fowls and one eagle. James Franklin was a man of small capacity, whimsical, jealous and arbitrary. But if he cuffed his apprentice Benjamin when the compositor blundered, and when he didn't, it was his legal right, and the master who did not occasionally kick his apprentices was considered derelict to duty. The boy ran errands, cleaned the presses, swept the shop, tied up bundles, did the tasks that no one else would do and incidentally, learned the case, then he set type, and after a while ran a press, and in those days a printer ranked considerably above a common mechanic, a man who was a printer was a literary man, as were the master printers of London and Venice, a printer was a man of taste, all editors were printers, and usually composed the matter as they set it up in type, thus we now have the expressions, a composing room, a composing stick, etc., People once addressed, Mr. Printer, not, Mr. Editor, and when they met, Mr. Printer, on the street removed their hats but not in Philadelphia, young Franklin felt a proper degree of pride in his work, if not vanity, in fact, he himself has said that vanity is a good thing, 
and whenever he saw it come flaunting down the street, all was made way, knowing that there was virtue somewhere back of it out of sight perhaps, but still there, James, being a brother, had no confidence in Ben's intellect, so when Ben wrote short articles on this and that, he tucked them under the door so that James would find them in the morning, James showed these articles to his friends, and they all voted them very fine, and concluded they must have been written by Dr. So-and-so, who, like Lord Bacon, was a very modest man and did not care to see his name in print, yet, by and by, it came out who it was that wrote the anonymous, hot stuff, and then James did not think it was quite so good as he at first thought, and moreover, declared he knew whose it was all the time, Ben was eighteen and had read Montaigne, and Collins, and Shaftesbury, and Hume, when he wrote he expressed thoughts that then were considered very dreadful, but that can now be heard proclaimed even in good orthodox churches, but Ben had wit and to spare, and he leveled it at government officials and preachers, and these gentlemen did not relish the jokes people seldom relish jokes at their own expense and they sought to suppress the newspaper that the Franklin brothers published, the blame for all the trouble James heaped upon Benjamin, and all the credit for success he took to himself. James declared that Ben had the big head and he probably was right, but he forgot that the big head, like mumps and measles and everything else in life, is self-limiting and good in its way. So, to teach Ben his proper place, James reminded him that he was only an apprentice, with three years yet to serve, and that he should be seen seldom and not heard all the time, and that if he ran away he would send a constable after him and fetch him back. Ben evidently had a mind open to suggestive influences, for the remark about running away prompted him to do so. He sold some of his books and got himself secreted on board a ship about to sail for New York. Arriving at New York, in three days he found the broad-brimmed Dutch had small use for printers and no special admiration for the art preservative, and he started for Philadelphia. Everyone knows how he landed in a small boat at the foot of Market Street with only a few coppers in his pocket and made his way to a bake shop and asked for a threepenny loaf of bread, and being told they had no threepenny loaves, then asked for threepenny's worth of any kind of bread, and was given three loaves. Where is the man who in a strange land has not suffered rather than reveal his ignorance before a shopkeeper? When I was first in England and could not compute readily in shillings and pence, I would toss out a gold piece when I made a purchase and a made and aughty mean and that Philadelphia Baker probably died in blissful ignorance of the fact that the youth who was to be America's pride bought from him three loaves of bread when he wanted only one. The runaway Ben had a downy beard all over his face, and as he took his three loaves and walked out Market Street, with a loaf under each arm, munching on the third, he was smiled upon in merry mirth by the buxom Deborah Red, as she stood in the doorway of her father's house, yet Franklin got even with her, for some months after. He went back that way and courted her, grew to love him, and they exchanged promises, he says. After some months of work and love-making, Franklin sailed away to England on a wild goose chase. He promised to return soon and make Deborah his wife, but he wrote only one solitary letter to the broken-hearted girl and did not come back for nearly two years. Time is the great avenger as well as educator, only the education is usually deferred until it no longer avails in this incarnation and is valuable only for advice and nobody wants advice. Deathbed repentances may be legal tender for salvation in another world, but for this they are below par.
and regeneration that is postponed until the man has no further capacity to sin is little better, for sin is only perverted power, and the man without capacity to sin neither has ability to do good isn't that so, his soul is a dead sea that supports neither amoeba nor fish, neither noxious bacilli nor useful life. Happy is the man who conserves his God-given power until wisdom and not passion shall direct it. So, the younger in life a man makes the resolve to turn and live, the better for that man and the better for the world. Once upon a time Carlyle took Milburn, the blind preacher, out onto Chelsea Embankment and showed the sightless man where Franklin plunged into the Thames and swam to Blackfriars Bridge. He might have stayed here, said Thomas Carlyle, and become a swimming teacher. But God had other work for him. Franklin had many opportunities to stop and become a victim of arrested development. But he never embraced the occasion. He could have stayed in Boston and been a humdrum preacher. Or a thrifty sea captain. Or an ordinary printer. Or he could have remained in London. And been, like his friend Ralph, a clever writer of doggerel. And a supporter of the political party that would pay the most. Benjamin Franklin was 20 years old when he returned from England. The ship was beaten back by headwinds and blown out of her course by blizzards, and becalmed at times, so it took eighty two days to make the voyage. A word of the old clergyman tells me this was so ordained and ordered that Benjamin might have time to meditate on the follies of youth and shape his course for the future, and I do not argue the case, for I am quite willing to admit that my friend, the clergyman, has the facts. Yes, we must be converted, born again, regenerated or whatever you may be pleased to call it. Sometimes very often it is love that reforms a man. Sometimes sickness. Sometimes sore bereavement. Dr. Talmadge says that with St. Paul it was a sunstroke. And this may be so. For surely Saul of Tarsus on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians was not in love. Love forgives to seventy times seven and persecutes nobody. We do not know just what it was that turned Franklin. He had tried folly we know that and he just seems to have anticipated Browning and concluded, it's wiser being good than bad, it's safer being meek than fierce, it's better being sane than mad. On this voyage the young printer was thrust down into the depths and made to wrestle with the powers of darkness, and in the remorse of soul that came over him he made a liturgy to be repeated night and morning, and at midday, there were many items in this ritual all of which were corrected and amended from time to time in after years. Here are a few paragraphs that represent the longings and trend of the lad's heart. His prayer was, that I may have tenderness for the meek, that I may be kind to my neighbors, good-natured to my companions and hospitable to strangers. Help me, O God, that I may be averse to craft and overreaching, and whore extortion and every kind of weakness and wickedness. Help me, O God, that I may have constant regard to honor and probity, that I may possess an innocent and good conscience and at length become truly virtuous and magnanimous. Help me, O God, that I may refrain from calumny and detraction, that I may abhor deceit, and avoid lying, envy and fraud, flattery, hatred, malice and ingratitude. Help me, O God. Then, in addition, he formed rules of conduct and wrote them out and committed them to memory. The maxims he adopted are old as thought, yet can never become antiquated. For in morals there is nothing neither new or old, neither can there be. On that return voyage from England, he inwardly vowed that his first act on getting ashore would be to find Deborah Red and make peace with her and his conscience. And true to his vow, he found her. But she was the wife of another. 
Her mother believed that Franklin had run away simply to get rid of her, and the poor girl, dazed and forlorn, bereft of will, had been induced to marry a man by the name of Rogers, who was a potter and also a potterer, but who Franklin says was a very good potter. After some months, Deborah left the potter, because she did not like to be reproved with a strap, and went home to her mother. Franklin was now well in the way of prosperity, aged 24, with a little printing business, plans plus, and ambitions to spare. He had had his little fling in life, and had done various things of which he was ashamed, and the foolish things that Deborah had done were no worse than those of which he had been guilty. So he called on her, and they talked it over and made honest confessions that are good for the soul. The potter disappeared no one knew where some said he was dead. But Benjamin and Deborah did not wear mourning. They took rumors word for it, and thanked God, and went to a church and were married. Deborah brought to the firm a very small dowry, and Benjamin contributed a bright baby boy, aged two years, captured no one knows just where. This boy was William Franklin, who grew up into a very excellent man, and the worst that can be said of him is that he became governor of New Jersey. He loved and respected his father, and called Deborah mother and loved her very much, and she was worthy of all love, and ever treated him with tenderness and gentlest considerate care, possibly a blot on the scutcheon may, in the working of God's providence, not always be a dire misfortune, for it sometimes has the effect of binding broken hearts as nothing else can, as a cicatrice toughens the fiber, Deborah had not much education, but she had good, sturdy common sense, which is better if you are forced to make choice. She set herself to help her husband in every way possible, and so far as I know, never sighed for one of those things you call, a career. She even worked in the printing office, folding, stitching, and doing up bundles, long years afterward. When Franklin was ambassador of the American colonies in France, he told with pride that the clothes he wore were spun, woven, cut out, and made into garments all by his wife's own hands. Franklin's love for Deborah was very steadfast. Together they became rich and respected. One worldwide fame, and honors came that way such as no American before or since has ever received. And when I say, God bless all good women who help men do their work, I simply repeat the words once used by Benjamin Franklin when he had Deborah in mind. When Franklin was 42, he had accumulated a fortune of $75,000. It gave him an income of about $4,000 a year, which he said was all he wanted, so he sold out his business, intending to devote his entire energies to the study of science and languages. He had lived just one half his days, and had he then passed out, his life could have been summed up as one of the most useful that ever has been lived. He had founded and been the life of the Gentle Club the most sensible and beneficent club of which I ever heard. The series of questions asked at every meeting of the Gentle. So mirror the life and habit of thought of Franklin that we had better glance at a few of them. 1. Have you read over these queries this morning, in order to consider what you might have to offer the gentle, touching any one of them? 2. Have you met with anything in the author you last read, remarkable, or suitable to be communicated to the gentle, particularly in history, morality, poetry, physics, travels, mechanical arts, or other parts of knowledge? 3. Do you know of a fellow citizen, who has lately done a word or the action, deserving praise and imitation, or who has lately committed an error, proper for us to be warned against and avoid? 4. What unhappy effects of intemperance have you lately observed or heard, 
of imprudence, of passion, or of any other vice or folly. 5. What happy effects of temperance, of prudence, of moderation, or of any other virtue? 6. Do you think of anything at present in which the members of the gentle may be serviceable to mankind, to their country, to their friends, or to themselves? 7. Hath any deserving stranger arrived in town since last meeting that you have heard of? And what have you heard or observed of his character or merits? And whether, think you, it lies in the power of the gento to oblige him, or encourage him as he deserves? 8. Do you know of any deserving young beginner, lately set up, whom it lies in the power of the gento in any way to encourage? 9. Have you lately observed any defect in the laws of your country? of which it would be proper to move the legislature for an amendment, or do you know of any beneficial law that is wanting? 10. Have you lately observed any encroachment on the just liberties of the people? 11. In what manner can the Junto, or any of its members, assist you in any of your honorable designs? 12. Have you any weighty affair on hand in which you think the advice of the Junto may be of service? 13. What benefits have you lately received from any man not present? 14. Is there any difficulty in matters of opinion, of justice and injustice, which you would gladly have discussed at this time? The Junto led to the establishment, by Franklin, of the Philadelphia Public Library, which became the parent of all public libraries in America. He also organized and equipped a fire company, paved and lighted the streets of Philadelphia, established a high school and an academy for the study of English branches, founded the Philadelphia Public Hospital, invented the Toggle Joy printing press, the Franklin Stove, and various other useful mechanical devices. After his retirement from business, Franklin enjoyed seven years of what he called leisure, but they were years of study and application, years of happiness and sweet content, but years of aspiration and an earnest looking into the future. His experiments with Kite and Key had made his name known in all the scientific circles of Europe and his suggestive writings on the subject of electricity had caused Goethe to lay down his pen and go to rubbing ember for the edification of all Weimar. Franklin was in correspondence with the greatest minds of Europe, and what his poor Richard Almanac had done for the plain people of America, his pamphlets were now doing for the philosophers of the old world. In 1754, he wrote a treatise showing the colonies that they must be united. And this was the first public word that was to grow and crystallize and become the United States of America. Before that, the colonies were simply single, independent, jealous and bickering overgrown clans. Franklin showed for the first time that they must unite in mutual aims. In 1757, matters were getting a little strained between the province of Pennsylvania and England. The lawmakers of England do not understand us someone should go there as an authorized agent to plead our cause, and Franklin was at once chosen as the man of strongest personality and soundest sense. So Franklin went to England and remained there for five years as agent for the colonies. He then returned home, but after two years the Stamp Act had stirred up the public temper to a degree that made revolution imminent, and Franklin again went to England to plead for justice. The record of the ten years he now spent in London is told by Bancroft in a hundred pages. Bancroft is very good, and, have no desire to rival him. So suffice it to say that Franklin did all that any man could have done to avert the coming war of the revolution. Burke has said that when he appeared before Parliament to be examined as to the condition of things in America, it was like a lot of schoolboys interrogating the master, with the voice and tongue of a prophet. 
Franklin foretold the English people what the outcome of their treatment of America would be. Pitt and a few others knew the greatness of Franklin, and saw that he was right. But the rest smiled in derision. He sailed for home in 1775, and urged the Continental Congress to the Declaration of Independence, of which he became a signer. Then the war came, and had not Franklin gone to Paris and made an ally of France, and borrowed money, the Continental Army could not have been maintained in the field. He remained in France for nine years, and was the pride and pet of the people. His sound sense, his good humor, his distinguished personality, gave him the freedom of society everywhere. He had the ability to adapt himself to conditions, and was everywhere at home. Once, he attended a memorable banquet in Paris shortly after the close of the Revolutionary War. Among the speakers was the English ambassador, who responded to the toast, Great Britain. The ambassador dwelled at length on England's greatness, and likened her to the sun that sheds its beneficent rays on all. The next toast was, America, and Franklin was called on to respond. He began very modestly by saying, The Republic is too young to be spoken of in terms of praise, her career is yet to come. And so, instead of America, I will name you a man, George Washington the Joshua who successfully commanded the sun to stand still. The Frenchmen at the board forgot the courtesy to their English guest, and laughed needlessly loud. Franklin was regarded in Paris as the man who had both planned the war of the revolution, and fought it. They said, he despoiled the thunderbolt of its danger and snatched sovereignty out of the hand of King George of England. No doubt that his ovation was largely owing to the fact that he was supposed to have plucked whole handfuls of feathers from England's glory, and surely they were pretty nearly right. In point of all-round development, Franklin must stand as the foremost American. The one intent of his mind was to purify his own spirit, to develop his intellect on every side, and make his body the servant of his soul. His passion was to acquire knowledge, and the desire of his heart was to communicate it. The writings of Franklin simple, clear, concise, direct, impartial, brimful of common sense form a model which may be studied by everyone with pleasure and profit. They should constitute a part of the curriculum of every college and high school that aspires to cultivate in its pupils a pure style and correct literary taste. We know of no man who ever lived a fuller life, a happier life, a life more useful to other men, than Benjamin Franklin. For 42 years he gave the constant efforts of his life to his country, and during all that time no taint of a selfish action can be laid to his charge. Almost his last public act was to petition Congress to pass an act for the abolition of slavery. He died in 1790, and as you walk up Arch Street, Philadelphia, only a few squares from the spot where stood his printing shop, you can see the place where he sleeps. The following epitaph, written by himself, not, however, appear on the simple monument that marks his grave, the body of,